Thanks, Steve, um, for those uh, kind and gracious words. Um, so, yeah, steps to reconciliation or conciliation um, that last. That's what I want to speak about. Um, this is a, a picture of my family over here, and uh, we're very diverse. Uh, obviously, I, I'm, I'm, I'm from Cape Town, thoroughly Capetonian. Uh, I like spicy food and jazz music. Um, and so I, I identify with the label colored. Uh, I know some people don't like that term, but that's, uh, that's a term that I've appropriated. Um, and, um, and, so, and so that's my background. I'm, it's, diversity is just literally a part of, of my life experience. Um, and, and that's my wife, Sachi, over there. She's, um, she's half Japanese. Her mom is fully Japanese. She owns a samurai sword and does tai chi. Um, and, and so she's fully Japanese. Uh, that's our kids over there, Jude and Tandy. They both have like blonde hair and blue eyes. And, uh, and so um, we're trying to figure out what they are exactly. We're, we're not sure. Um, it also makes um, being out with them in public a little bit difficult because sometimes I'll get that, I'll be holding Tandy and I'll get like that one old lady look at me like, where's that guy going with the white baby? <laughs> you know, you get, you go to the side of the store and they're like, put down the jacket and what about the baby? You know, so, so diversity, it's a, it's a part of, of, of my experience, um, the joys and, and some of the challenges. Um, like all of us, we, we face the joys and the challenges of, of diversity. Uh, if you think that diversity and reconciliation is something that we don't have to talk about any longer, let's just play a little game. I'll mention some words. You tell me what you're thinking. Helen Ziller, Twitter. Vicky Momberg. Ashwin Willemse, Black Lives Matter, Charlottesville, McRae, John Piper, Marikana, Fees Must Fall, Land. We still need to talk about reconciliation or conciliation. And so I want us to look at uh, just one passage of scripture, um, Galatians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn there with me, Galatians chapter 2. And I want to look at it under four headings, the power behind reconciliation, the fruit and heart of reconciliation, and finally steps towards reconciliation. And we'll get practical towards the end from chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, oh, sorry, that's uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Galatians 2, 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then? that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we find, we Jews find ourselves also among sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, 
then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let's just pray together. Lord, we want to thank you so much for these words of grace and truth. And we want to pray that you would come and inspire us afresh with the power of the gospel to live gospel-shaped lives and build gospel-shaped communities. In Jesus' name, amen. So when Paul arrives in Antioch, he finds a church that's segregated. The Jews and the Gentiles are segregated. They're not eating together. They're not breaking bread together. And I want you to notice how Paul approaches Peter. He, he kind of is a little bit rough with Peter. He doesn't get to Peter and go, listen, reconciliation is really difficult. Adversity is difficult to understand. And so I'm going to go light on you for this one. Uh, you need to enlist in this training course. And I'm going to write a book with 250 principles and steps that you can practice to get to a reconciled church because it's very complex and very difficult. No, what he does do is he says, verse 14, I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas in front of them all. He rebukes Peter publicly in front of them all because he'd not been acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Now, this is part challenging, but also part encouraging because there's a very real expectation that Peter would be able to build a reconciled church, a, a church that is diverse, a church that is flourishing, a, a, a church that is unified. And, and, and Paul has this expectation because it's linked to the gospel. And when he gets there and he, see that he sees that Peter's not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, he gets a little bit irate. I don't get upset when my one-year-old daughter is learning how to walk and she stumbles because she's learning how to walk. I don't like publicly go in front of everybody, oh, you little weak-legged child, why are you not uh, walking properly? Why are you stumbling all over the place? No, there's no expectation that she would be able to walk properly. Paul has a very real expectation that Peter would be able to do this, not because of Peter, but because of the power of the gospel that Peter has. And Paul confronts him publicly, challenging him to rely on the power of the gospel. He said elsewhere, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Now, when I became a Christian, I experienced the power of the gospel. I was radically not Christian. Uh, I was so not Christian. I belonged to this group of guys called the Spice Boys. And um, it, it sounds funny, but we were really bad. I mean, I promise you, it sounds... Uh, we were like this English-speaking, almost gang type of guy, group of guys. And just to give you an example of how naughty, uh, how bad we were really. Um, the, the day I became a Christian was Easter. And um, my parents used to force us to go to church on Easter day. That was the one day that uh, you had to go to church. And so I thought I'll make it a productive visit. Took some Malawi cob with me. If you don't know what that is, uh, it's, it's weed. Um, and I was going to sell some to the students over there. At church, um, that's how that's how bad I was. I ended up selling some to this guy. I met his sister, who was pretty. She invited me back to church in the evening. His people in the Baxter Theatre in Cape Town at the time, and I heard that I am. And now we know that you're here. Fantastic. Um, and so I, I, I take some along. Uh, I'm not interested in God. I'm not interested in church. Uh, I'm totally not interested, um, but they bring out a speaker. I hear the gospel in the foyer being proclaimed through a speaker, and God powerfully uh, uh, speaks into my life. I, I start to break down crying, 
the guy that I sold the weed to also starts crying, but he's not getting saved. He is like backslidden and stuff. So he's like, oh, my dealer. So, you know, going down. So he starts crying. I'm crying. I get saved. The power of the gospel transforms my life. The power of the gospel is the thing that changes people. Jesus said that sower and reaper rejoice together. When the gospel is sown, it's unlike any other seed for transformation. It grows up immediately, instantly. It's powerful. It's, it's supernatural. And that is the thing that enables us to be reconciled. There's a social problem at the church in Antioch. It's a, it's a horizontal problem, a problem between people. But it's interesting that when Paul gets to Antioch, he says there is a social problem, there is a horizontal problem. But the horizontal problem is actually rooted in something deeper. It's rooted in a vertical problem. In his answer and in his, his interaction with Peter, he says there's a, there's a horizontal problem. Yeah, they're, they're segregated. But then he starts proclaiming the gospel. He says there's a vertical problem here. And you need to get the gospel right. That's the, that's the thing. The horizontal always reveals the vertical. It's never the other way around. People believe what they see, not what we say. And, and Paul then explains this relationship between the horizontal and the vertical. And he says in verse 15 and verse 16, listen, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. He's proclaiming the gospel to Peter. And he says to Peter, uh, you, you get justified by, by, by faith in Jesus, not by works of the law. It's as if Peter and his team have lost sight of the sufficiency of the power of the gospel to bring about unity and transformation. They're forcing the Gentiles to belong, not only simply through a confession of belief in the justifying power of the gospel, but through certain works following Jewish customs. And, and, and Peter is getting this rebuke from Paul, and Paul is saying to him, verse, uh, verse 20, I live by faith in the Son of God. Legalism comes through faith in me. Grace comes through faith in the Son of God. Jesus loves me. I put my faith in Him. I'm justified before Him. Legalism comes through faith in class, culture, and, and, and gender. And, 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 and He's saying to, to Peter, this is what's happening in this church. Peter, obviously, being socialized in a context where Jewish national pride um, is the thing that defines him. And, and, and he starts to believe that the, that, that somehow the, the people who are part of this community need to be accepted on the basis of following Jewish customs. You need to believe in the gospel, but you also need to follow Jewish customs. Accepted people accept people. Unconditionally love people, love unconditionally. And when we place more emphasis on culture, class, and gender, we proclaim a different gospel. And so... We're never going to deal with the problem of reconciliation apart from the gospel. We can wait on government to do something. We can wait on policy to be implemented. We can wait on social projects. We can try and name and shame and get angry with people on Facebook. None of that stuff is going to work. It is the power of the gospel that brings people together, that transforms people. And it is immensely powerful. Number one, the power behind the gospel. Bow behind reconciliation. Secondly, the fruit of reconciliation. A big question that I think we ask is, is the time and the money and the energy and the effort that you need to put into keeping people together actually a distraction from mission? And it can be. It can be. Because 
it's like the body just focusing on itself and trying to keep all the different parts working together and staying together. And it can become very inward focused and, and the body is not really on board with what the body is supposed to be doing, running, jumping on its mission. But I want you to notice that Paul's concern is, is framed by a concern for mission and the gospel. The, the preservation of the gospel is central to Paul's apostolic mandate. It's the preservation and the passing on of the gospel. That is what is central to Paul. He's not necessarily concerned about the pain and the trauma that being disunified brings. His primary concern is actually about the preservation of the gospel and passing this message on to next, the next generation and to others. It's, it's, it's a missional concern. Jesus, too, thought this way about unity. He said, a new commandment I give you, love one another, that's the standard, not as the world does. If there's racism out there, you make sure that it's not in here. Here's your standard. It's a gospel standard. Love one another as I have loved you. And then the reason is given. Is that reason because unity is important and people ought to feel cared for and wounds ought to get mended? Absolutely, that is important, but that's not the primary reason. The primary reason is love one another as I've loved you in a gospel way so that the world would know that you are my disciples. It's a missional concern. Being unified and working at reconciliation is not actually a distraction from mission. It is actually the thing that will validate the mission. When people see a unified church, they'll actually believe the gospel. They'll be into the gospel. And uh, himself goes on in Ephesians chapter 2 to, to speak about a, a bigger reason. You're not only validating the gospel to other people. In Ephesians 2, he says that you're validating the gospel to forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The argument starts in chapter 2 verse 14 when he says, For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Those walls that were mentioned early on, cities were built with the walls in place. Uh, Jerusalem still has walls, like they divide into quarters, separating Jewish courts from Arab courts, Christian quarter. And the walls were there to keep people from warring against each other because, because this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, ethnicities and cultural groups always think that we're the best and then we're the best and they end up at war. And so the walls were built to keep peace. And then the gospel comes to cities and Paul is looking at this metaphor and saying, listen, the gospel is the thing that actually causes people to scale the walls, not to war against each other, but to worship with each other and to build churches. And so the gospels brought peace. And then he goes on in the next uh, part of that, of, that, of that chapter, verse 6, to say that this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. He's saying, here's the mystery. The mystery is not that God would create one new man out of these two groups. That's not the mystery. That's always been part of the intent of God. The, the, the purposes of God has always been to have a people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue. That's always been, this is a, a gospel imperative. It's not an optional extra. It's always been in the purposes of God to do this. The mystery is how? How will this happen? How will God get people who are at war with each other to be united and to be a people for his own namesake? That's the mystery. And Paul says the mystery is that this is going to happen now through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and his gospel is the thing that is uh, going to bring about this unity amongst people groups. Politicians try to unite people, 
but no politician seems to be great enough to bring people together. Causes try to bring people together, but, but causes bring about a unity that's somewhat superficial. And when the cause is over, the unity dissipates. And so the question is, how will this happen? And the answer is through Jesus and His gospel. And then we have an insurance kind of uh, um, uh, disclaimer on this. This is definitely going to happen. But God is going to protect people who work towards unity. Ephesians 3, um, he picks up again, verse 10. He says, his intent was that now through the church, we are the custodians of this, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that phrase, authorities in the heavenly realms, in the Greek, it's repeated word for word again in chapter 6. And in chapter 6, in that famous text about the armor of God, it, the, the phrase appears again. What, the point is that we, we sometimes think about the armor of God as being for us during personal battles. And that is right. That's fantastic. We should think like that. But the, but the context of Ephesians from the beginning to the end is how God will bring about His eternal purposes to, to bring one new man together out of disparate groups and how God will protect and ensure that that happens. And God gives the armor of God to help those who are fighting for unity and God will accomplish it by strengthening them and empowering them against spiritual forces of evil, which is why we still struggle with things, spiritual forces of evil. So that when we unite over racial boundaries, we don't only send a message to the watching world that the, the gospel is true, that the gospel is validated and it's, and it's solid and it's believable. We send a message to spiritual powers in the heavenly places saying that Jesus is winning. Jesus is winning. He's accomplishing his purposes. Though spiritual forces of evil try to divide and conquer, Jesus is winning because we're still reconciling, because we're still uniting. When we, when we unite behind the greatest cause, the cause of Christ, the message to not only the watching world that the cause of Christ is the greatest, most rewarding, most amazing cause to get behind, but we send a message to the spiritual forces in heavenly places saying, Jesus is winning. Jesus is on the throne. He is the greatest leader that there is because united we stand. That is the eternal purposes of God. That when people unite, they won't only validate the gospel to the watching world, but that they would send a message to forces of evil, like Nick said the other night, last night, making the devil tremble, making the demons tremble. Jesus is winning. And the story ends with Jesus winning. We know that. We know how the script ends. Revelation 7, 9. All the multi-site and megachurch pastors love this verse. A great multitude. A great multitude that no one could count from every nation. From every tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and the Lamb. Jesus wins in the end. This is not a question. There, is, there isn't a question if the church is going to reconcile or not. That is not the question. The church will be reconciled. Unity will happen. The question is what measure and part will we have of this unity? The cross happen and the gospel is powerful the tomb is empty jesus is going to win the only the only question is what measure will we have in this now in order for this to happen we do need to ask 
the difficult question that Paul asks Peter. It's a difficult question because we would expect Paul to come with a list of what to do's. What should I do to bring about reconciliation in my context? But Paul doesn't go about it that way. He asks a how question. He asks really a why question. He asks Peter, how is it then that you have forced the Gentiles to follow, follow Jewish customs? It's a difficult question. It's not a, it's not a what. He doesn't want to deal with a what question. What must we do to get things reconciled? He comes and he says, why? How has this happened? What's happened in you, Peter? And that's a difficult question, but it's an important question because this is not the first time that we have heard a talk like this. Hundreds of talks on reconciliation has been given. Loads of books have been written, blog posts, and you can read about it all over the place. But, but what we do need is also to ask the, the why question. Not only the, the what question, but the why question. Why has there not yet been reconciliation? Why has there not yet been the reconciliation that ought to be there? Because we have the power of the gospel. And so what I would like to do is just survey 500 years of South African history in the next five minutes. I'll leave out a few details here and there. But, but, but it will help us to answer the why question. Because we, 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 need to, we need to just reflect on why this hasn't happened. And so I want to make three observations about um, South African history. I know that not everyone's from South Africa in this context, but, but the colonial, colonial phenomenon is a global phenomenon. And South Africa is a good case study, and I think there are some things that are actually applicable to other contexts that are true to South Africa. So, observation number one, Christianity and systematic racism are inseparable. When my grandmother was forcibly removed out of a suburb in Cape Town called Mowbray, um, she never spoke about it. My grandmother speaks about everything. She, like, I would call her, and she, she loves the Lord also, so she's just quoting verses. She's one of those grannies you call and gets on the phone, she just starts quoting verses. You don't ask for the verse, but she's just like, and Ryan, listen, I hope you're not relying on your own ways, because you submit your ways to the Lord. And it's just verse of it. She, she loves the Lord, and she talks all the time. It's like a monologue, and just, that's my grandmother. But she never spoke about her, her, her pain and the trauma of being forcibly removed. And when I, whenever I would go with her to her church, um, which is an evangelical church, they would never speak about it. Never speak about it. And, and so this is, this is part of our story. This is part of our legacy. There's, there's like a, a normalizing of something that is abnormal. And here's why. 1488, Bartholomew Dyers arrives uh, in Cape Town. And the first two things that happen is he fights with the Koi Koi, defeats them, and then, secondly, plants a cross in the ground. And one uh, historian, a Christian historian, says this, Christianity was to feature in every stage of the ensuing European colonization process. 1497, Vasco da Gama lands at St. Helena Bay. And the first two things that happens is there's a conflict with the Khoi Khoi again. He takes some land, puts in a cross, and then in 1501 builds a chapel in Mossel Bay. When Van Riebeek arrives in 1652, he does two things immediately. The first thing he does is gets uh, the Herian to send slaves um, from different parts of Africa. And then he institutes Reformed theology. And at the first prayer meeting, this is what he prays, that true Reformed Christian doctrine be spread among these wild, insolent people. In 1806, when the British occupy the Cape, there's about 9,000 slaves at this point, 6,000 uh, free inhabitants. 
This speaks about a culture that's already developed in the Cape. And the culture is this, that slavery and Christianity go hand in glove. When people arrive as slaves, they get Christian names, Moses and Abrams and Daniels. And I've got friends with those surnames. Um, but but it, was a, it was a Christian thing that was happening. They were getting new names as they arrived. There's this one account that we have of, um, um, of slaves getting tithed to the church. So boys getting taken from their mothers while mothers getting beaten while they're holding on to the boys in order for the boys to get tithed for the church. Slavery and Christianity go hand in glove. Your father could be your slave owner and your deacon at a reformed Protestant church in Cape Town and different parts of South Africa. That is a culture, that is the context in which reformed theology develops in Cape Town. We need to ask the question, what is the context in which reformed theology develops in South Africa and elsewhere in the world? Jonathan Edwards owned slaves. I love Jonathan Edwards. Fantastic. I, when I was at seminary, I never knew he owned slaves. George Whitfield owned slaves. One of my heroes. I never knew he owned slaves. So maybe I'm not going to read George Whitfield on justice next time. <laughs> you know, Jonathan Edwards on the glory of God. And that's fantastic. But, 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 but the theology, I think, was affected by the context. Um, later on in the 19th century, slavery ends. But in the 20th century, a bunch of um, missionaries, in here missionaries, begin to perfect the doctrines of apartheid. And then a former missionary, now turned politician, D.F. Milan, institutes the doctrines of apartheid. From the beginning to the end, there had been a normalization of a kind of violence that was abnormal. And that affected everything. It affected everything. Second observation, places linked to race. My granny was removed. Her place in life was affected because she was a so-called colored person. That was the reason for it. A, a, a systemic structure was put into place in order to benefit one group and oppress another group. That's what happened. The settlers set up exploitative trade and barter regulations with the Khoi Khoi and the Hosa. And there's still remnants of this exploitative system in place today. The educational system was there to teach people of color their place as servants and not as governors in society. That's true of the missionary schools to a degree. Protestant evangelical missionary schools led by the LMS, London Missionary Society, and obviously more so true of the Bantu education system. Um, and colonizers didn't only take land, they paternalistically gave identity. They set in place a race structure. They came and said, you are and you're not so white and you, you are more black and you're this and you're that. They, they it identified and categorized people. Race was a construct to serve a bigger system. It was a power construct that was to serve a bigger system. Some people call the system systematic racism or whiteness. Whatever you want to call it, there is a system in place that's been finely tuned by, by people that, that architected this whole thing, and we have inherited the system. How do we participate in the system? Because this is not only a problem for one cultural group or one ethnic group. Anybody can participate in the system. Our Gini equality coefficient has gone up from 1994 from 0.64 to 0.7 in 2011. Our current government has participated in a system that actually oppresses the large majority of, of people. 
So it's not directed at one particular group. We all have to make a decision. How will I participate within the system? Will I disrupt it? Will I support it? And then third and last um, observation is that history reveals that our theologies of justice were slightly immature. Um, three words that come up again and again when you read the good guys, like I'm talking about the, the good missionaries, those who were genuinely Christians, George Smith, Van der Kemp, James Reed, Colenso. Um, people were ambiguous. They were like, it was like a Katy Perry song, hot, then you're cold, yes, then you know, up, then you're down. Like sometimes we fall, we fight, yes, but other times like, oh, okay, the heat is too much. That's, that's what happened. One um, conservative, um, reformed, uh, church historian Richard Alfick says this, most missionaries in South Africa did not straightforwardly advocate an extension of racial equality from the spiritual to the social realm. Black Christians, to the contrary, tended vigorously to assert that equality in the eyes of God should evolve into social and political equality. The white missionaries' relationship to the doctrine they had introduced was immensely complex and intricate interplay of advocacy, subversion, and even downright hostility. The second word that comes up a lot is accommodationist. So we would accommodate the government, whether it be an, an empire that's evil or apartheid that's evil, there would always be an accommodation of the government. Uh, and, 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 and if there are, are, are people of color that are getting oppressed, well, we'll just kind of get them to calm down, don't go to war, don't fight, just give the land away, assimilate, just try and keep peace so that we can accommodate the government. Um, one historian says this, the South African Missionary Society, which was like a conglomerate of, of different groups like the LMS and the Wesleyans, etc., the South African Missionary Society gave expression to the general attitude of most missionaries towards the colonial authorities at the time in, it, in its constitution. Here's the constitution they're quoting. The board of directors of the society was requested to be mindful of the general duty of all Christians that it, is the law, that it is the Lord's will that all Christians are expected to be obedient and respectful of the government and to be very careful to avoid anything which may cause conflict between state and church interest. In other words, state and church interest was the thing that shaped the theology of some of these missionary organizations. Lastly, gradualists, like people like Bishop Colenso, who was slightly liberal, but he was radical, considered um, what he had done to fight against slavery. But even him, he didn't allow black people or people of color to preach because he felt like that in time they would be ready, but they're not ready right now. So in a couple of generations, they would be ready. And obviously we have people like Steve Biko coming in, critiquing this idea of gradualism, that somehow, sometime later on, people would be ready to experience the freedom that they long for today. We've inherited this ambiguous, slightly gradualist approach to our theological convictions around justice. And so during the student protest, as Steve mentioned last year, I found that people would pray for peace, but not for justice. I ended up chatting to, um, to, to one pastor during the protest um, in Stellenbosch, um, and I'd had quite a traumatic week. Um, I'd been called in earlier in the week to go into UWC because the police wouldn't let in ambulances to, to care for, for students. Um, so a lawyer friend called me. I went in, um, tried to negotiate. Um, they let me um, go and help people and take them to hospital. They wouldn't let the ambulances in. As one kid had been, um, had, I asked him what had wrong, what was wrong. 
He had been taken by police, beaten in a field, and then left to go back to his friends as an example. So we're sitting in the hospital with this kid. The doctor says this, and he's got a broken arm, broken leg. Um, why? Because he believes that, that, that education is actually the backbone to poverty, and if we don't eradicate the masses from being uneducated, you're not going to deal with inequality and poverty. That's the reason he got treated that way. So a couple of weeks later, I'm in Stellenbosch. Again, got called by someone to go to Stellenbosch. And um, I ended up chatting to this, to, this, to this pastor from Stellenbosch who was on his way to a prayer meeting. And he's asking me, will I join them in the prayer meeting? I say, yeah, sure, I'll join in the prayer meeting. Will you join me afterwards to go and protest and just be a presence with the students? Um, and he says, no, I'm not going to join you. That's ungodly. It's unbiblical. So, uh, so I say to him, really, is it ungodly and unbiblical? Why is it ungodly and unbiblical? It's, it's protest. It's violent. People must be patient. People must wait uh, for things. I say to him, okay, well... Um, Tell me, would you have protested for those in the concentration camps in, uh, in, in Nazi Germany? He says, obviously, yes, that's very different. So I said to him, well, have you heard of the concentration camp called Langa and Kailitsche and Mitchell's Plain? The places that people call killing fields. These are the places. And we ended up in this massive debate because he just couldn't see the system. He couldn't see the system. And I could see that he couldn't see and he wanted change, but he couldn't see the system. And part of the reason is that he had inherited a theology that made it hard for him to see what I saw. When Marikana happened, so few evangelical church leaders supported that cause. We have to ask the why question. Why is it that people like Martin Luther King went and fought against a, a system and he joined a sanitation workers' strike, even to the point of losing his life? He got shot in Memphis because he supported that strike of sanitation workers. Why is it that his theology, Protestant, albeit slightly liberal, his theology led him to join this fight against oppression. But sometimes ours doesn't. From the TRC 1994 until now, I wonder how much land restitution has happened within evangelical circles. I know that pastors don't have land. Uh, we don't have <laughs> very much money. I'm not talking about us. But there are people in our communities and there's loads of, of land. We, we don't need the government to, to tell us how to handle these issues. We've got the Eighth Commandment. We've got Luke 19. We've got Luke 16. We need to encourage people to do what is right. And I wonder why that doesn't happen often. And so in Antioch, people with the same prejudice have formed a structure that disadvantages the Gentiles and advantages the Jews. It's Peter, Barnabas, the circumcision group, possibly even James and the hundreds of churches that he represents. And, and Paul comes in and he has to make a decision. Will I support the structure? Will I disrupt the structure? And Paul makes a decision. Like Christ made a decision. Because essentially what has happened here is a reversal of Christ's ministry. There's two tables in Antioch. There's two class groups in Antioch. There's, there's, there's two kind of tiers of, of membership in Antioch, those who have access to, to leaders and those who don't have access to leaders. And ultimately, it comes from Peter and his team who have just lost focus. They've lost the, the heart. Christ died in part because of his table fellowship etiquette. He met with everyone. 
He came into a system of, of, of nationalistic pride, and he, and, he, and he said, this is not, God is not only for the wealthy, God is not only for the men. And he had a group of people around him, and he got, he got accused of being a, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Why? Because he, in, in his table etiquette, which was an extension of friendship and intimacy, he met with, with everyone, which became a symbol of the gospel. became a symbol of, this is for anybody who would repent and believe. This is by grace through faith. And, they, and there's a reversal that happens, not, a few, not even a couple of years later, in Peter's life. And Peter loses focus of Christ's ministry, of Christ's heart. And Paul comes to do exactly what Jesus did to disrupt this and call him back to following Christ, call him back to not being exclusive, call, call him back to not just look after positions of honor, which Jesus said you ought not to, you ought to be servants, not only those who seek the best places at the tables. And, and Paul calls Peter back to acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I wonder if we have two tables in our churches and in South Africa. And, and I know that there are many who are fighting against this. And God bless you for doing that. But there are two tables. There are black churches and white churches. I wonder if there are two kind of classes of people in our churches. People who, who kind of don't get contextualized too. And people who get loads of contextual energy poured into them. I wonder if we have two psycho-spiritual effects. People feeling slightly inferior, even in our context. One day I was watching uh, the Expresso show. It's a show that in South Af Cape Town, uh, it's a morning news show. And uh, there was this, this pastor and this worship leader. And I actually knew the worship leader from Mitchell's Plain where I grew up. And the worship leader starts speaking. And the worship leader starts speaking in this accent um, which is not a Mitchell Spain accent. It's like he's, he's actually more Australian than the, than the pastor. And I'm like, what is going on here? I know this guy. He's never been to Australia. Never been to Australia. And he's like, yeah, Australia. And I'm like, firstly, it's Australia. That's the first problem. Secondly, it's like... And I know, I know the, pastors, the pastor didn't mean harm, but it means seeing what's going on. Why is this guy changing the way he speaks to fit in? Why is it that there's this person who feels like they need to, they need to follow customs in order to belong? It's not the gospel. And if we don't preserve the shape of our churches, we may risk passing on the true apostolic gospel to the next generation and to the watching world. So let me just conclude with some practical steps. Well, the first practical step is reflect, listen, learn. Try to start to see the interconnections between the system that is there, that is prevalent, it's been set up, and, and what we've been taught and, and Christianity, and, and then separate the Christianity from the system. Separate and be holy. It's a, it's a call to personal holiness. That's what Paul was calling Peter to. Step two, commit to a social justice project. Because repentance must lead to action. It's one thing to repent, but then we need strategies. We need strategies now for uh, the Thousand Days program. We need strategies to deal with inequality. We need strategies to figure out the education issue. It's, we 
ought not to feel overwhelmed. We ought not to just kind of linger in the place of, oh, this is too difficult. No, no, the gospel is powerful. Christ is alive. And we need to, to move on to building a nation together and, and building a, a continent together. And so, and so we need strategies. But I would say that we sometimes rush on to, to mercy ministries, confusing them with justice ministries and just jumping over the justice bit. Sometimes we might, my son steals something from my daughter and I say to him, Jude, you have to give it back to Tandy. I know that he hasn't learned the lesson if he's kind of saying, yes, I'm going to, but then he sneaks off with a thing, right? He hasn't learned the lesson yet. There's a learning moment in the justice application that is important. And so, and so it's important for us personally and corporately to figure out the, the giving back, the, the doing of justice, and then from there, working towards other ministries. And so uh, figure that out. And there's some practical um, steps in, in, the, in the kind of booklet that I put together for you on your, on your, on your desks, um, on your chairs. Step three, increase relational bandwidth through diverse leadership. Um, diversity is not measured by the people in our congregations. It's not measured by our congregations. It's measured by the leadership team. You can, be, you can have like a diverse school and then still end up in the newspaper because of racism. And ultimately, it's because the top structures aren't diverse. Diversity, uh, you can have like a, a marketing agency that's very diverse in the people they're appealing to and then still end up making ads that cause controversies in the newspapers. Diversity is about leadership. And, and we, we, we call throughout the, the scriptures to remember that we are not omniscient. That's an incommunicable attribute of God. We need other people. We need other gifts. Men, women, complementarian. We, we, we have uh, kings who needed prophets. We have apostolic evangelists, pastors with different perspectives, um, making the body work and function so we can come to maturity. We have uh, in, in Corinthians 12, an interesting metaphor, the body metaphor, which is about spiritual gifts, but it's also about different ethnic perspectives. Because in chapter 12, verse 13, there's a mention of Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free. So cultural diversity is also a means for the body to do what it's supposed to be doing because you, you've added another layer of perspective to the, to the culture that you're creating. So when we diversify leadership, we increase our relational bandwidth. Step four, gently encourage maturity. Gently encourage maturity. In Romans 14 and 15, we don't have time to look at it in detail, but Paul provides a framework for dealing with hostility between cultural wars. There's a cultural war about food happening. And so many of the, of the discussions that we have are not about necessarily racism. It's about this song versus that song in church. It's about, you know, the color of the curtains and this group likes to be very organized. And this one sometimes is a bit late uh, towards things. That's where some of the tensions are. Amen, I hear that. Um, So so Paul gives this framework and and I'm just going to give like kind of four headings for his framework. He mentions the judgmental strong. Those who have the, the right belief about eating all kinds of foods. They know it's right to eat all kinds of foods, probably um, Gentiles, and they're kind of mocking the Jews for not being able to eat all kinds of food. So uh, you're able to eat all kinds of food, but you're slightly judgmental. Um, one day I was with this, this, this two co-workers. The one, they were both Christian. The one guy was mocking the other guy for not having a beer, and the other guy was also being 
pretty rude about um, this, this guy, this Christian guy drinking. And even though the, the, the one guy was right theologically, you can't drink, he was completely wrong because he didn't actually care to know that that guy came out of an abusive alcoholic environment. Sometimes we can be so right about the, our positions on, on race and reconciliation and still be wrong. I, I can be wrong because it's coming with anger. I can be so woke and, and, and I can be judgmental. I can be self-righteous. I can come out. I can, I can be right about what I'm saying and still my heart is not in the right place. I'm, I'm judgmental and I'm strong. The second category that he gives is the condemning weak. Uh, these guys are probably Jews who grew up believing that certain foods would defile them. They haven't transitioned into the ministry of Jesus. And so they, 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 they're weak, but they're also condemning. And so it's like you come close to an area of weakness in somebody, and all of a sudden they just, they just get defensive. Sometimes our weaknesses can surface as defense and, and aggression. And, and Paul calls these guys the, the judgmental weak, no, the condemning weak. And then there's the pitied weak. Paul says, okay, listen, okay, I see you can't eat certain foods. Just make sure that you're okay with it in your conscience. And so if it's, okay, if it's wrong for you to eat, then, then you don't have to eat. But he calls them the, the weak in faith. So that's beautiful. That's subtle. That's indirect. That's gentle. You don't even know that you're being challenged, right? It's like, it's fine. Listen, it's okay if you can't participate in this discussion right now because you're exhausted and you're hurt and there's pain. And so, but that's not where you must stay, right? You don't want to, no one wants to go, yes, I'm the weak in faith. Yes, made it. No one does that because you, you, you automatically want to, you want to say, okay, it's fine for me from right now, but I want to be part of, the, of a conversation that's going to see the purposes of God realized, see Jesus winning in my generation. And then the truly strong this is where Paul is. He knows that he can eat anything, but he'll put aside his rights of eating anything for the sake of his weaker brother. Now, do we need that? Wow, we need that. I know that it's difficult for uh, black evangelicals uh, right now. You are kind of your liberal friends. You're too reformed for them, but they understand your justice, your heart for justice, your experience of injustice, your conservative evangelical friends tolerate you. <laughs> so you kind of just, it's a bit lonely, it's a bit traumatic. It's like my right to not have to explain everything, right? We can be in that space. This is my right. I shouldn't have to. But will you lay down your right and take responsibility for the broader purposes of God? That's what Paul's calling for, 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 for white people. It can be very traumatic right now. Every gun is pointed at you. You're always getting tuned about everything that's wrong with the world. It's traumatic. And part of it is like, it's unfair anger and just judgmental and, and every, wiping, wiping everybody with the same brush. And it's my right to not get this, to not have this. I didn't even do this. It's my right. But will you lay down your right to take responsibility, sometimes for weaker brothers, but will you take responsibility for the broader purposes of God and lead us? I think there's a moment right now in South Africa in particular but I think it's bigger than South Africa, where we have a moment to, to, to redefine and go from being reformed, charismatic, missional, but being socially engaged so that we're able to preserve the gospel, hand it over to the next generation, relying on the power of the gospel. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. He is going to come back for a, for a, a unified, reconciled, beautiful bride that is going to happen. And there's a moment right now for us to say yes. Even though I might be tired, 
I'm going to rely on the power of the gospel. I'm going to keep working. We are working. We've done well. There's more work to do. And I'm going to keep pushing in so that Christ's purposes are realized and we are able to say Jesus has won on that beautiful day when he says, well done, good and faithful servants. Amen.